You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. But I want to greet you from Sovereign Grace Church Paraland, first of all. Greetings from the church. You have had David Reed here a few times. David Reed serves with me there in Paraland. He is just the most precious brother to me. So I have, I have already sent you the best. And so here I am in, in his wake of care for you and his serving you. But uh, I, I am happy to be here with you. And our church says we love you. You are on our hearts. Having not met many of you, although I have begun to meet many of you now, You're on our hearts as a church plant, as those we prayed for and our love for Phil and Rob and their family, Danielle and Terry. We we love you and we we pray for you regularly. You represent excitement for us in terms of how God is working as the Lord has planted his people here. And so if you're a part of that, as God has brought you here, you are a part of that. And we, we want to express our gratefulness as well as our region. So our region greets you. And um, when we gather, it is so exciting to just rehearse how God is working among you. So thank you for that. We love you, and I look forward to getting to know many of you. May we have the, the privilege to do that as we, by God's grace, go to heaven together. I'm going to drink a little bit of this, and then we're going to read 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 13, and we're going to read through verse 21 this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. Verse 13, 1 Peter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we need you now. And Lord, if we're honest, we know we need you every moment. Lord, as we come here this morning, we, we can be assured, you've even assured us that you are here to do a work among us as we gather. And so, Holy Spirit, would you, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, the truth of your word? Would you then take your word and write it upon our hearts? 
writing it upon our hearts, Lord. May you fill us with the appropriate joy and praise and, and exaltation that you deserve. May you even through this, Lord, conform us more and more to the image of our Savior, Jesus, making us more like him. Oh, how we want to be more like him. And how in your grace you have delivered the means by which that happens. The way in which you are conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. So sanctify us, Lord, for your glory. Meet us this morning for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I think if, if truth be told, there, there's a lot of hopelessness in the world. Um, we live in a world of, of hopelessness, and we, and we know each of us here this morning, it, it, we, we don't have to lim, live long to have to find ourselves in, in a place of, of diminished hope. And this morning, as we work through this text, this letter written by the Apostle Peter to a group of churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, Peter wants to bring encouragement on, on what really it means to hope in God. And really to highlight when we think of hope, hope in an ultimate sense, there's, there's really only one foundation for hope. <laughs> and that is Christ and what He has accomplished. What He has done. So, so Peter here is calling his hearers, he's calling us to set our hope on the absolute certainty of God and His promises for us in Christ. And here's, here's why. What we hope in determines how we live now. And how we live now demonstrates what we truly hope in. Let me say that again. What we hope in determines how we live now. And how we live now demonstrates what we are truly hoping in. What that ultimate hope is. This is why in verses 13 to 21 that we just read, Peter frames his commands regarding how we are to live during our exile on the earth. That is verses 14 to 20. He frames in verse 13 and verse 21, he frames all of it with this command to hope. So not only does he say what your hope will be, and he, he commands us to hope. He reminds us of why our hope rests in God. So here, here's my, my outline for you. We don't have it on the, the screen, so that's, that's my bad. Slow to do that. So I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to go slow so you note-takers can get this. Here are three ways we live with our hope in God. We do that by looking forward. We do that by looking up. And we do that by looking back. So we, we do that by looking forward. We do that by looking up, and we do that by looking back. So let's start first with let's look forward. Here's what I mean by that. We look forward in hope to the grace we'll receive at the return of Christ. We're looking forward to the hope, to the grace you'll receive, we will receive, those in Christ at His return. How often do you think about the return of Christ? As you, as you get old, I'm, I, I'm, over, I'm over 50 now. now like, I'm acting like I'm, a, I'm an old man, like I got the wisdom of an old man. Let me tell you, young people, 
I don't know that I have that much more wisdom, but I am getting older. In different seasons of our lives, there's a sense in which we turn our attention to the Lord. Would you just come quickly? When you find your hope diminished and when you find yourself in a difficult context and when you feel the pressures and weight of this life, broken relationships, physical weakness, struggles with your own remaining sin, don't you get to the point sometimes you're like, okay, Lord, now's a good time. Today would be the good day. Other days we might think, I'm feeling pretty good, Lord. You could tarry a little longer. I'm all good. But on those weighty days, we, we feel that we need to look forward in hope to the grace that we will receive at the return of Christ. Set, verse 13, set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The full revelation. Peter reminds all Christians that our hope is in God who has already worked on our behalf to save us through Christ Jesus. There's a lot we jumped over when we started at verse 13 this morning. There was verses 1 through 12. And verses 1 through 12 highlight the good work that God has done in saving His people. And the people here, are they're like us. You know, we read the Bible, we forget. These people are like us. They're experiencing a renewed persecution for being Christians. They're being isolated from the culture. They're being resisted by family. They're facing trials and difficulties, and they're wavering a little bit in their faith. And so Peter addresses them. He writes this letter to them to remind them first of what they, who they are in Christ. Verse 3, if you were to look, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, you have been born again by the work of the Spirit. And now the Spirit indwells you and you have a living hope. The reality of what Christ has done is is working out in your life. We were once dead in trespasses and sins. We now are alive to God in Christ Jesus. What amazing grace we have already received. How marvelous it is to reflect on what Christ has done. This salvation now applied to us is the foundation for which Peter is moving forward as we think about the grace that will come at the full revelation of Christ, His return. He is calling us to look forward in hope to that day when Christ will return and we will receive that inheritance which is imperishable, unfading, and kept for us in heaven. So we have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. This is why we sing the gospel every week. This is the grounds and foundation of who we are. We're in Christ this morning. You're here this morning. Anyone grateful that that Christ has saved us? That His blood has covered our sins? That we've been atoned for by His work? That a lamb has shed His blood in our place once and for all? Not every year, but once and for all to satisfy the wrath of God that we deserved. But the Father planned to put that wrath upon His Son that His Son might die in our place. Glory be. Do we we grow weary of that? In my sin sometimes I might, but oh, how the Lord quickly renews me in the truth of the Gospel. Oh, how it never really grows old as I reflect on what I would be apart from Him and and my sin and and my resistance of Him and and my need of Him in an ongoing way and, and of the benefits that come from Christ. 
So when our hope is, is rooted in the great salvation that has been accomplished on our behalf, that will drive our actions. Not in order to be accepted by him. Remember, verses 1 through 12. So this afternoon, if you, if you hear anything in this message that might tempt you to think, I need to go out and earn the favor of God, you need to go back and read verses 1 through 12 this afternoon. So even as we jump into verse 13, there's an emphasis here, though, on, on a behavior. There's an effect that God has in, in saving people that there's this hope, then, this hope in the future return of Christ actually motivates and and inspires our obedience. How, how do we learn to set our hope on the grace of God? Peter says it for us. Through preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. So there's the, the good work that God does to save us, which is all of his good work. And then there's a way in which we respond to that work in the hope of his return that involves action. Preparing your minds for action is literally girding up the loins of your mind. Not a term we use every day. Have you girded up your loins today? That's not a phrase we use. But, but it paints a picture of a man preparing to run. If you wore a long skirt and you needed to run, you need to pull that skirt up, wrap it in your belt so that you can move, you can get going. And that's the emphasis here is to, to take serious the work now in your mind. What we need to gather our thoughts. Scripture says setting your hope fully on God requires mental preparation and resolve. It's not a passive activity. This isn't a passive activity. It's an engagement in the Lord. So that grace that's come to you in Christ Jesus equips you and inspires you and then motivates you and keeps you and fills you and the Spirit works through you and you then take these thoughts captive. We begin to think a certain way. Our hearts begin to orient and feel and experience a certain way because we have new hearts. We've, we've been born again. We, we have the hearts of stone removed and now we have hearts of flesh. So we're preparing to run. If we're, if we're to set our hope fully on the grace yet to be revealed, we need to prepare ourselves with a proper mindset and with mental resolve. How do we do that? Okay, great, Daryl. How do we do that? How do we gird up the loins of our mind? Peter explains with the word sober-minded. That's what he says. Be sober-minded. When we think of the word sober, what do you think of? Probably in the context, most often, when we think of it now, of alcohol. And that can provide a helpful framework. Consider how drunkenness affects every aspect of the human body, it clouds our judgment, it slows our reflexes, it diminishes discernment, it provokes us to do things we would not in our right mind do. The extremeness of that. And now consider the fact that Peter is speaking about girding up the loins of our mind, and then Peter speaks of the mind not merely as the source of intellectual activity, it's not merely we're just we're thinking on things, but for Peter, the mind determines or controls everything we do. This is the will engaged in this. And so he's saying we need to be sober-minded about what it means to live as grace-receiving people in a fallen world with hope in his future return. As we reflect on his future return, we will be affected in our thinking and how that applies in the patterns of our living and the decisions we make. Disciplined thinking will control right behavior. 
Self-control is also a good translation here. We're to live with self-control. If ever we lived in an age that did not value self-control, we probably live in an age, at least we may be thinking in our lifetime. It, you don't meet a lot of people just on the street going, great job being self-controlled. You know, way to restrain what you would really want to do here in this situation and keep from doing it. But rather, we can celebrate this idea that we express ourselves in every way according to our immediate feelings. But we are to prepare our minds for action, not by, not by imbibing the patterns and philosophies of the world that literally will inebriate our minds, make our minds dull or dilute our discernment, and provoke us to do things contrary to God's revealed will. Dear friends, let us not be drunk on the world. And what we mean by world is not that we're not to enjoy the world, but the thoughts and patterns of the world that are in resistance to God. The prioritization, the prioritization here is, well, how does that happen? By reflecting on the grace that we will receive at the return of Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, we need to daily reflect on the return of Christ for our souls, for our maturation, for even our own sanctification, for our own clarity of mind. This life is not all that there is. This present temporal life is not the end game. We don't, it's not just 80 plus and then we, we're good. We did, our, we did our duty and we're not sure what happens next. Now Peter is saying, you, you know that the Lord will return. There's, you're to look on him and, and see that he will return. Or as Paul says it in Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit leads us into this view of the return of Christ. If you want to know even what, what Spirit-oriented living is, it's anticipating the return of our Savior. If there's never a, a reflection and thought on the return of Christ and the establishment fully of His kingdom in every way, then we have to step back and say, oh, are we, are we being led by the Spirit? Because the Spirit's leading to that end. The new heavens, the new earth. And our inclusion in that, all of that glorious ending is, is where the Spirit is leading. And you've been caught up, dear brothers and sisters, into that great story, that great truth, that great reality that Jesus Christ is going to return. And the heaven, the new earth, will descend. And it will be established. His kingdom forever and ever. So look forward in hope to the grace we'll receive at, at the return of Christ. And this serves to make us more like Jesus even now. Be sober-minded. We know He's returning. Even in this way, this future hope of Christ's return is a sanctifying hope. Next, Peter calls us, and so number two, next Peter calls us to look up in hope to the nature of God our Father. So we're to be looking out to the return of Christ the grace that we will receive at the return of Christ. It's more grace in the future. And secondly, we're to look up in hope to the nature of God, our Father. 
Our new birth has changed our identity. Okay, this is the blow the mind moment. And, and we, you hear that you hear this often and, and you, were, you were so cared for by your pastors. Even this morning as we've been led through our time of singing in worship and now you're listening in worship. God is our Father. <laughs> now because we're so familiar with Father... In a temporal way, our relationships, the relationship of child and father, it's normal for us. It, that just seems something that can just hit me rather generally. Okay, yeah, God's my father. But if we were to start in Genesis, and we were to, it'd be a long service. We read Genesis through the Old Testament moving towards Matthew. We would see that this God is something else. This, this God is altogether holy and majestic and glorious and completely pure. And everything he does is right. And then here, Peter, who's, who knows this to be true, is saying now, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is now our Father, verse 17. <laughs> nah. He's wanting us to just be overwhelmed by this move to a reflection on God's nature and character as we look up to see who he is, but to see it, even his holiness, in light of what Christ has done and our participation in Christ. He is our father. Sons and daughters, then we bear the likeness of our father. And so like father, like son. Since God our father is holy, we are to be holy. Verse 16. Any of you get shaken by that a little bit? I get shaken by it every time I'm reading it. Like, really, Lord? Is that a typo in the original Greek? Is that a typo in the Greek? What is that? This is a reference to several passages in Leviticus. Leviticus 11, if you want to write them down, Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19, and Leviticus 20. You can see this emphasis upon the holiness, the separation of God's people from the world. And so Peter here applies what's already been explained in this letter there's a time of fulfillment, and so this fulfillment has come. Yahweh is holy, and New Testament believers are to be holy as well for the same reason. He's, their father is holy. I mean, I have a son, and I, I kind of want him to be like me in some ways, and then there's so many other ways, probably more ways, I don't want him to be like me. Any parents here, you're like, I wanna, I'm going to be faithful to rear my children, but do what I do, don't, or do what I say, not what I do, right? We get into that. We know the mistakes we've made. We know our own sins so intimately and our failures and our difficulties. But that does, in faith, we continue to parent and point them to the truth of God's word. And in faith, we pray that God will apply that to their hearts. I had a wonderful father who was an example in so many ways, who's home to be with Jesus. But he set such a marvelous example. And I, I want to, in many ways, be like him. But no matter what example we set as fathers, hey, we're, we're not representing God the Father. <laughs> he is altogether holy and perfect. And more than anything, I want my son to be like him. More than anything, I want my children to be like their heavenly father. That's my greatest desire. Not, not for them to be like me. So parents, this morning, what is your greatest desire? We want, we want our children to be like Jesus. We want our children to be holy as God is holy. The concept of holiness in the Old Covenant 
related to those things which were consecrated or dedicated to God for service. And that's, I think, the emphasis here is this idea of consecrated to God. So as we look up and we see God's holiness, the thought isn't we want to be equal to that holiness. The thought is we want to be consecrated as vessels of use, set apart, holy vessels for the glory of our holy God. So we want to be holy as He is holy. And there is a positional reality to that that we will see as we move through this. But right now, let's just step back and say there is a call for a behavior change. When we're born again, there's an immediate behavior change. There's a looking for Christ's return. There's a looking up to who God is and what He has done. And God is holy. God alone is uniquely distinct from all else. He alone is an uncreated being. He alone dwells in unapproachable light. Therefore, nothing common or unclean can come into his presence. Consequently, only those things that are, or persons which are made clean and consecrated to God for his service can approach God's presence. Don't you see that when you look up and see the Holy Father that you're always remembering the work of the Son? We're, we're always brought immediately back into the work of Christ when we, when we come up against the holiness of God the Father. Oh, how we need to be clean. Oh, how we need to be covered in perfect righteousness. And oh, how Christ alone is able to do that. And even as we walk out our lives, we continue to be conformed more and more ourselves into the image of our Savior Christ. The new covenant people have been set apart by the Holy Spirit for the sprinkling with Jesus' blood, 1 Peter 1, 2. So you've been, you've been sprinkled by the blood. Therefore, you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, your position is secure in Christ, and now we're living that out in our day-to-day. And we are regularly in that living out, looking up to God the Father. Called us out of his, this world to himself, verse 15, right? He's called you out of the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. So how do we conduct ourselves in this world? Well, how we conduct ourselves in this world reveals to whom we are dedicated. There is a result. There is a fruit that should be working in our lives, just as it did for God's Old Testament people. Our conduct in this world will reveal to whom and to whose service we are truly dedicated. Now, we're not arguing for perfection here, but we are arguing for the good work of the Holy Spirit for fruit. Do we, do we look just like the world? Here's some questions. Do we look just like the world or we do, do we look like our Father in heaven? Are we becoming more like Him and less like the world? What does our conduct show about our true hope and, and what we have made our real confidence or trust? This is one of the realities of, of being his, of being God's. And where our answers may not be one we would wish it to be, we should ask ourselves these questions. Brothers and sisters, what other inheritance do we have? What other object of our worship and our devotion gives us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven? For us and whom else or where, where else will we place our hope 
And who else or what else will we allow to direct our conduct? Oh, let it be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look up hoping in our God, we are meant to be motivated to holy living by God's promises. So what happens when our faith is weak? It's like, that's great, Daryl, but man, things are hard. You, you don't understand what I'm going through. Oh, many of you are going through such difficult times. You, and all of us will go through difficult times. The realities of, of living in a fallen world, but we are not living apart from the God who is re- making all things new and redeeming us even as he moves toward the consummation of his kingdom. So a couple of dangers. One danger is for us to look down. So instead of looking up, we look down. We compare ourselves with one another. I'm doing pretty good compared to Sally and Susie or Jerry and Tommy. But that's not the standard here in 1 Peter. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. (laughs) That's the standard. The standard is to look up, not to look down at one another in comparison. We're not to think we match up pretty well with that church down the street. If I wanted to get really snarky with my own heart, I could say we match up pretty well compared to that church down the street that is, it's not a, it doesn't have an emphasis on sovereign grace. I match up pretty well. There could just be a thing in my heart of comparison to other churches and, and so just letting, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm to look up to the holiness of God and recognize the purity that's being brought to bear in who he is and and how much I need the righteousness of Christ to cover me to make one inch of progress in my sanctification this week. What I need to make one movement towards him in growth is his grace that I received at salvation. And he's saying the rootedness of that, the confidence you can have, the hope you can have in change to be more like me. It started before the foundation of the world and it will end with the consummation of all things. It will be secure. So Peter goes like, big picture. This is not 30,000, but this is cosmic view. Cosmic view of what it means to be saved. And and our, our little journey, the Lord cares about that little inch. He cares about that little pain that we have. He cares about how we're feeling in all of these situations. And he says, remember to have hope in me. Look up to who I am. Remember what I've done for my people. Behold the wondrous works of the Lord to preserve His people. Will you doubt that I purpose to save and will finish and complete that purpose? Oh, let us not look down. Let us look up. I have a a Honda Accord. And that Accord, when the weather changes, the tire calibration, the TPS, gives me a little warning and instead of actually going to check the tires I know that I can go into the computer on my car and just hit recalibrate which and then the the warning goes away (laughs) so I'll go into my computer that is a lazy man folks that's a lazy just go to go go check your tires no I will go into my computer so I know it's the weather I'll do it later but it bothers me that that little warning signs on there low tire Go into the computer, recalibrate, it goes away. Sweet, I'll just drive. Let's not recalibrate our lives to 
to the world around us. Let's calibrate our lives to the standard of God's word. Let's not just reboot, right? Or that's an old term. People are like, what's reboot? Um, Let's not change the computer. Just go in and say, you know, it's hard to live as a Christian right now. This season's really hard for me to live as a Christian. I'm just going to compromise here just a little bit because it's okay. I just need to recalibrate my... No, don't don't start there. And don't start with, I'm going to grab myself by my own bootstraps. Look up to the Holy One who is your Father. Look to Him who is empowering you to live out the commands of Scripture and and to have those applied to your heart and experience transformation and change the hope of conformity into Christ is built into what Jesus did in saving you. It's positional because you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and it's progressive and He's committed to finish that work. So that's one danger is to look down. Another danger is to live according, the text says, to the passions of our former ignorance. Ignorance is bliss. And sometimes we might even just grow weary of pressing into the Lord and his word. And we might say, can I just, can I just be a slightly be- below average Christian? And I don't know what that really is. It's not even a good term. Christian is someone who's filled with the Spirit. But you know, in our own desires, and our own wills, we may grow weary in well-doing. And we're like, I'm, I'm tired of pressing in. I'm just weary, Lord. I'm physically weary. I'm relationally weary. I'm emotionally weary. And the Lord would say to us, don't, don't, don't live by the passions of your former ignorance when you, when you didn't know me, when you were not my people. Because now you are my people. Now you are my sons and daughters. These are warnings, a reminder that He's our Heavenly Father. If you call on God as Father, verse 17, remember that you are to reflect His character. He is holy, and we are to be holy. So Peter says, keep in mind that if you call God Father, He is also the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So he brings in not only His holiness, but the fact that God will judge according to that holiness the whole world. He will judge all things. And, and I, I recognize that there can be distortions in our preaching of emphasis upon God's judgment without the reality and the foundation of grace. Because if we just came and we, we heralded God's judgment in a graceless context, then we might as well go home. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We would still be, we would still be lost in our sins. We would have judgment. We would have this sense of Things need to be right, but we would have no way in which we could be made right. But now that we have been made right, we need to remember that God is judge. And that He will come to judge the living and the dead. And that He will judge rightly. And and for those who follow the Lord, we have to see this one as real judgment for deeds done. Recognition that we need the, the righteousness of Christ and our positional standing with Him, but also recognition that apart from him you will be judged outside of Christ outside of fellowship with him and so this this is to work in our hearts to be remembered there's a sense in which Peter is highlighting and I think it's true the the final evaluation does include our deeds our deeds are not irrelevant they're not salvific but they're not irrelevant. They don't save us, 
but they're not unimportant. They're important. And they will be evaluated. And I could even, I think I would say that we will not enjoy living with the love of God unless we also live with a right fear of God, is the way we would say. There's a fear of God that the future judgment works into our hearts. He is, you know, the C.S. Lewis line. He, he's not a tame God. He is a lion. Now, he's our heavenly father and a loving lion is in Christ, but he is a lion. So we're not able to create a God in our own image. We have to respond to the God that is revealed in his word. And doesn't that more and more just drive us back to the amazing nature of his grace? The amazing nature of what he's done in Christ. The fear of the Lord. You, Samson's father. We don't talk much about Samson's dad, Manoah. There's a Noah here, but is there a Manoah? I don't, I don't know if there's a Manoah. Samson's father, this Manoah offered a, a burnt offering to the Lord and the angel went up in the, in the flame to heaven and we're told that Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. This is the fear of the Lord. You, you cannot see my face for man shall not see my face and live, Exodus 33. Fear of the Lord is not merely an, an Old Testament concept. It is who God is revealed in His Word. It is who He is. The early church walked in the fear of the Lord, Acts 9. The Apostle Paul, knowing the fear of the Lord, sought to persuade others to believe the gospel of reconciliation. So when we think about looking up to see God, we think about His holiness. We think about, well, first of all, we think about our, His fatherly care. We think about His holiness, and then we think about His judgment. And then what do we do? We fear. We revere Him. We worship Him. We affirm who He is. We affirm that He is the judge of all the world. And the fear of God then becomes a means of pursuit of holiness, our sanctification. When our faith is weak and our hope is fading, we don't normally think about considering the fear of the Lord, but it serves our hearts to step back and say, oh Lord, forgive me for making all of life about me when I should fear you. We are not, again, please hear what I'm, please hear what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we are absolutely unimportant. No, but our importance is found in who God is, not in who we are. It's found in, in, in who He is. You want security. You want hope for the future. You want hope for the present day living. Hope will be found as we rest in who He is. And then His grace is expressed in His love for us. In our hurts and pains and difficulties and challenges and confusion, oftentimes we start where we are because that's where we are. <laughs> but isn't it kind as the Lord draws us out and we're no longer myopically focused on who we are? And we find that as we focus on who he is. The Lord ministers to our hearts in these hurts and pains and difficulties and begins to cleanse us and clean us and make us look more like him and our confidence grows because we're seeing him more than we're seeing even our problems and our difficulties, our failures and our weaknesses. The fear of the Lord is not here for mere contrast. He's our father and then he's holy. We're to fear him. Michael Reeves has a, a great quote on this as we move towards the end. A great emphasis on this in his book rejoice and tremble i think we might have it up on the board it's a long quote so bear with me 
Here it is. The living God is infinitely perfect and overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. And so we do not love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, then, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of our love for God. The right fear of God, then, is not the flip side of our love for God, nor is it one side of our reaction to God. It is not that we love God for His graciousness and fear Him for His majesty. That would be a lopsided fear of God. We also love Him in His holiness and tremble at the marvelousness of his mercy. True fear of God is true love for God defined. The biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of love toward God that is fitting. It shows us that God does not want passionless performance or vague preference for him. To encounter the living God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. He is not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a God to be received listlessly, seeing clearly the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. The love of God. As we move into the love of God, there's just a fear here, an honor here, respect here of like, I don't deserve to be here. This is holy ground. Because Christ shed his blood that I might be in this place as those whom he's placed his affections on. And so now you move into that place, not as like, yeah, thanks, I know the Lord loves me. High five. But you know that. You know that through the example that you have in the gospel. You know that through the example you have in your pastors. You know that believer because the Holy Spirit is working that truth into you. You know that after you have failed and you feel the weight of your sin and conviction comes. And you know that as you confess that sin, that burden is lifted. And you know, I don't deserve your forgiveness. But that's not the grounds of my hope. The grounds of my hope is that Jesus purchased that forgiveness. He has forgiven me and cleansed me and oh how wonderful it is to bask in your holy love for me the weight of this is a build this is a a glorious build so first we're to look forward to the coming of christ the the grace we'll receive at the return of christ and then second we're to look up in hope to the nature of god our father then we're to look back in hope on Christ's ransom. We look back, the, these saints in First Peter that are addressed in Peter, they're looking back. We're to look back to the cross, the foundation, which is where Peter goes to talk about what Jesus has done. One last illustration. There's a, there's a YouTube video. Don't look it up right now. There's a YouTube video of a flash mob performance of Beethoven's Symphony No. 9. You may have seen it. It's in Nuremberg, Germany. I need water. I couldn't say Nuremberg. Um, The video begins with, with just people in a courtyard walking around busily. And there's a young girl with a recorder facing a cellist, and, and she begins to play Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9. And I'm not going to hum it for you because it'd be terrible. But as I watch the video, they play, and then and little by little, this flash mob of, a, of an orchestra begins to form. And so this thing builds. It builds. And so the, 
Beethoven's number nine just is building in this courtyard. And, and I was watching it recently, and, and I just began to weep. The, just, the, as people just began to, whoa, what's going on here? Yeah, we know that. And they just started gathering. People just started gathering. And, the, and the more and more of the orchestra was coming in. You know, they're just walking around, br- bringing their instruments in and joining one instrument after another. And then the choir the choir is actually there. The choral is there. And they're, they're behind. They're starting to sing this thing. And people are standing there singing. And it's just a marvelous display of this, this build. And there's a very real sense in which Peter here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is building this symphony in First Peter where he talks about you personally being born again. The good work that God has done. And your, your future hope is your trust in Jesus. The, work, the promise of inheritance is, is secure in Christ. And, and he's building it through this first few verses and now as we come to the end in verses 20 and 21 it's like this great the whole thing is on right now I mean it's this amazing demonstration of the whole picture of redemption because we're looking forward to Christ's return and the grace we will receive and we're looking up to what who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ and then we're looking back to the cross and now remembering what Jesus has done for us knowing that he began this and he will finish it and so there's this glorious reverberation in this marvelous text that he reminds us the cost of our salvation by taking this melodic theme of Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt and presenting it as a complete symphony now that Jesus has come. Do you, do you see yourself as a, as a note in that great symphony? The symphony of Christ Jesus our Lord. The promise from the very beginning and the fulfillment of that, that as God is working, do you see the, the bigger narrative that you're wrapped up in? I, I don't know all of your circumstances, but I know there is pain in life, there is there are joys in life that we celebrate together. There are hopes and desires. But here Peter's saying, whatever those lesser hopes, good or bad, first start with the greater hope of who Jesus is and what he will finish for you. How he will bring glory to himself. The melodic theme of the Passover was filled in the full symphony of, of Jesus' redemption. 1 Peter 1.19, Our lamb without blemish or spot, by whose blood we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. We've been sprinkled with Jesus' blood. And when the day of final judgment arrives, God will pass over us. So while we are to fear the Lord because of who He is, and we can be assured of His final judgment, we are challenged to look back to the cross to trust in the sacrifice that God has provided for us. Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So this magnificent symphony, the new exodus, we do not move beyond judgment. God will judge sin. But here, for us, we recognize how he has judged sin as we place our faith in him at the cross. The picture here is that we're, we're to be looking forward with an arm of faith, clinging to the grace coming at the revelation of Christ. We're to look up with eyes of faith and loving adoration and fear to the God of holiness and beauty. And then we're to look back with an arm of faith, looking up to the ransom, or looking back to the ransom paid for us. We take up our cross and we follow Him, looking ahead 
to the grace that is to come. Looking up to who he is and looking back to the cross, the work that Christ has accomplished. And there's this wonderful assurance. It may seem odd that Peter chooses at this point to end with, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Verse 20. Simply, it seems like he could have, could have just said, hey, he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, which he does say. And that would have been enough, but, but the two ideas go hand in hand. Peter wants us to know that our salvation was not a divine afterthought. It was not God's reaction to the world gone wrong. No, foreknowledge has covenant implications. He sought you out. He foreknew the plan he had. God knew, as one commentator says, God knew the complete program of redemption before the foundation of the world. He knew the complete program of redemption before the foundation of the world. What hope you can have in who God is and what he's accomplished. Where else would we rest our hope? And what hope we can have, not only that he's redeemed us, but that he will change us and make us more like him each and every day. The gospel, the good news, is the primary motivation for our holiness and our walk with the Lord in all circumstances. God is holy. He will judge sin. We deserve such judgment, but instead of judgment, we receive mercy because God has purchased us with the blood of Jesus. We've been delivered from the bondage of our former ways. We are not to display those former ways, or live those out, were to display our Father's holiness during our time on earth. And when we meditate on this gospel and continue to believe the gospel, we will be gloriously preserved as we long for the reconciling of all things for the glory of His great name, all the while becoming more and more like Him as we journey through this journey of sanctifying hope. Let's pray.